Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. I'm your host, Ali Hussain, and this week I sat down with Jill Murray, CMO of Arcadis. In this episode, you'll learn how B2B organizations can be more authentic than their B2C counterparts when it comes to purpose, how to help your team in a challenging economic environment, and finally, the one piece of advice that Jill Murray keeps returning to throughout her career and life. From the CMO crowd, this is How to Grow a CMO. Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. On the show, we hear stories and secrets from leading CMOs and discuss the values, skills, and strategies they use to drive growth for the biggest B2B brands in the world. How to Grow a CMO is part of the CMO Crowd, the peer-led community for senior marketing leaders. You can stay up to date with all our episodes, events, and exclusive member-only content at cmocrowd.com. My guest today is Jill Murray. Jill is responsible for the global marketing and communications function at Arcadis, where she's transformed the team to focus on the value they can bring to the business. Based in Amsterdam, she was chosen to be one of only 25 marketing leaders in Europe to be part of the cohort for the 2022 Marketing Academy Fellowship, offered in partnership with McKinsey. Jill Murray, welcome to How to Grow a CMO. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here today. Thank you, Jill. You've had a diverse and an exciting career. So to start with, can you tell us how you got into marketing and some of the major milestones along the way? Sure. Um, I guess at school, I um, was given the advice to um, pick a subject that I was good at at school and just do study that at, at university. And that was kind of the only bit of career advice I, I was receiving at the time. So I did that. I liked economics at school, so I then went and studied that. Um, but after a year of full-time study, I was getting a little bit bored and I decided to go and join the workforce and um, managed to get a job at Macquarie Bank where I stayed there for another eight years and then completed my degree at night. And it was during that time that I discovered the wonderful world of marketing and I saw for the first time the power of a brand, you know, and what that can do for a business to attract clients um, and I was at the forefront of some of the things that we were doing, you know, setting up new websites and new teams and, and also moving some more of the traditional services online. So really solid experience. But, um, yeah, I guess I sort of stumbled across it like many marketeers. It's a, a similar story. You don't often hear about um, marketing when you're at school, but I eventually found my way there after a few years in the workforce. That is true. And, and I wonder to some extent why that is, actually, if that's something maybe you could do something about as an industry. But perhaps that's, uh, unless you have any immediate ideas, perhaps that's a conversation for another time. No, but I, I do think there's a point there. I mean, you, you literally get told about those more traditional sort of things. Well, certainly when I went through, maybe I'm showing my age, but you don't hear about marketing and you don't, you know, it was only until I was in the workforce that I actually understood what it was and then started to, to want to learn a little bit more about it. So for sure, I think we could do a little bit more in that space to encourage people to think about it earlier on. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so so you've you've got the economics background, which I think feeds into some of the interesting perspectives that, that we've talked through briefly on on marketing that you might share today. But could you start by telling us a bit about Arcadis and give us an idea of how marketing structured there? Yeah, sure. 
Um, well, at Arcadis, we, we solve some of the world's biggest problems. Uh, so we work in cities around the world um, and looking at things like congestion in a city and providing advice on mobility strategies. We look at buildings and placemaking and think about how we create new, new buildings, but also how we make old buildings more sustainable. And we have um, a huge teams and businesses in water and um, environment and including environmental remediation. So taking that old, you know, um, a piece of land and remediating that for a future generation to use. So we're really at the forefront of sustainability and been working in that space for decades. Uh, and our workforce is made up of about 30,000 um, people, um, very B2B business, and with a, a range of services that we offer. So engineering, project management, program management, cost and so on. Um, you know, such a huge, um, you know, range of services um, that, that we um, offer to clients, both in sort of the government and also the private sector space. In terms of marketing, we're structured around, you know, brand and, and campaigns, digital marketing, and also um, we do cover corporate communications, um, which include external comms and internal. So for us, um, marketing is a, a fuller function that also includes um, communications. How much of that structure was in place when you arrived and how much is, is due to the way that you've organised the team? Yeah, when I arrived um, in the role, it was very much structured around communications and that was sort of a very sort of traditional structure. And one of the things I've been trying to do is move us along that trajectory from sort of a support service where we could have been seen originally and move that along to sort of value creation and growing a brand. So putting in place for the first time a brand team and, you know, putting in roles like brand storyteller and those sorts of things, but also in digital marketing. Um, we didn't have a team that was centralised around that. We didn't know what even our, our MarTech stack was. So we had a lot of work to sort of upskill in that area and to bring in um, new skill sets and to sort of um, grow the team as well. So very much moving from just a, a sort of a communications with a bit of marketing to more of that strategic marketing approach, um, as well as, um, of course, communications remains in there. So that that change there seems really interesting to me. And I know you've worked in a couple of different industries. As you said, you started off in financial services. Um, and I'd be really interested in how different industries have different perspectives on the value that marketing can bring. So obviously in financial services, I think you mentioned marketing seen as a crucial driver of growth and profit. Um, is that true? And, and how does the industry you're in differ today from that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually. And it wasn't something that I thought about when I was making the shift from financial services to, you know, the built environment, as we call this industry. And I was thinking, well, that's the thing I love about marketing, right? You've got this skill set and you can just pick it up from one industry and transfer it to another. But there is a bit of domain knowledge that you have to learn along the way and some industries don't have that same approach as others and I really learned that when I made the switch. So if I think about financial services, then, yeah, they certainly see the, the power of brand and they'll invest strongly in that. Sales um, and, and revenue is tied up with marketing. So, Marketing is seen as a value creator and a driver. And I remember having lots of campaigns where I'd have to work out, well, how many leads do I need and how many conversions am I going to get from that? And what's the what revenue can I bring in? And, and then briefing all the, you know, call centres and those sorts of things in the day, you know, making sure that I really understood, you know, whether that campaign would work um, because of the business results it brought in. Um, but this is a different context in, in the built environment. And they're not right or wrong. It's just 
different, you know. So in the built environment, we we get our work um, through our reputation, through the work that we've already done and the project success we've already had with clients. We have much longer lead times. So if we're going for, you know, we're trying to win, you know, some infrastructure work, we might be doing a pursuit for three years, might be five years. So during that period of time, you're looking at how do you grow your reputation in that sector or in that geography. Um, So it's very much through reputation, which plays out in sort of more of a content management, you know, content marketing approach and sort of thought leadership and showing your expertise in those areas through the insights that you bring. So it is very different and um, I think we'll probably get closer to that financial services model um, as the the industry starts to more productize and offer more digital solutions and we package up digital solutions and offer them to our clients. I think when when more of that happens, you'll start to see marketing then seen really strongly as a revenue um, or growth growth enabler. So thinking about the different role then that, that marketing plays maybe from one industry to the next, and I, I know that's a generalization, are there particular audiences you found interesting or you've had to learn a great deal more about in this role versus your previous roles? Um, yeah, probably uh, working with governments and public sector sort of clients is very different, um, even the way that you talk about a project. We, um, we might work on a, on a project and contribute to it, but we don't own the asset, we don't own that so it's very much working and, and agreeing with your partners what you can say say about and what you can't. So there's sort of just another layer um, around building up these thought leadership themes. I think um, that I probably didn't appreciate in financial services. Where in financial services, my memory is really just around you know what are you selling? What are the attributes? You might be selling an emotion. You know, buy this product, you'll get you'll get a sense of financial security. Um, it's just a different nuance and those messages probably build up over a longer period of time, you know, and um, some of the audiences um, are really different, really varied and will vary from country to country, obviously, as, as different environments in each city. I'm fascinated by the role that ecosystems play in increasingly connected uh, businesses that, that we operate. You mentioned there the role of government. How did you go about learning how to engage with uh, the public sector as an audience? Yeah, I think that um, when I first moved into this sector, I think that it took a long time actually, you know, so it was through going to associations and events and actually meeting clients. So I was lucky enough to work on a program where I would go out and meet clients and, you know, ask them about how our services have been and and learn more about that. And I think it's actually getting to know the audience. I think in um, for, you know, for B2B marketeers, that's really important that we are removed from our audience and anything that we can do to get us closer, you know, is really important. So I always tell my team, I know it sounds a bit cliched, that if you worked at McDonald's, you'd go and eat the hamburgers. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, for us in B2B, you've got to find a way to kind of do that. You've got to find a way to kind of meet the clients, get to know them, You know, maybe you start with those industry events and forums, um, but then actually meeting clients and talking to them and understanding a bit more of their world is really important. Um, Just understanding even language and, you know, the sorts of topics that they're interested in is incredibly important for for B2B marketing. I I agree. I sometimes 
tell my team that you are what you eat in terms of your media diet and your reading diet. So uh, when people join the team, I try to get them to sign up to various uh, you know, podcasts, newsletters, uh, checking various websites. I know the audiences that we tend to address are themselves interested in. Um, I, I find that quite a useful tactic too. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you have um, introduced the importance of brand and the value of brand into the business to some extent. How do you balance brand and demand? I mean, do you think of them as two separate things or, you know, they, is that part of the way in which you organize your budget by choosing a certain amount of brand and a certain amount of demand, or do you have a different approach? Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, it's a challenge thinking about these budgets. Um, I recently heard Mark Ritson talk, um, actually just last week, and he said that for B2B firms, and they should spend 42% of their budgets on brand. And so when I heard that, I immediately, of course, got out my calculator and I thought, hey, are we doing that? And sort of tried to figure it out. Um, and we're doing about half that, I'd have to say. Um, and I do separate them out. And, um, and I'm afraid to say that, you know, demand is probably uh, lower than that again. And, yeah, so we'll have, we sort of, organise the budget sort of based on those sort of groupings I was saying, so brand and campaigns and sort of digital marketing, but that's broader than just demand. Do you know that can also be websites and channels and tools and those sorts of things and then corporate communications, so where you might have some of your paid um, media, for example. So, yeah, I think it is it is a challenge working out where the split should be, um, but I'm always interested to hear what others uh, think it should be. So that was an interesting um, stat from Mark. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I know there's some some interesting re- research that, that Bernard and Field have done on that, um, firstly in the B2C space and then the B2B space. I have to, I am slightly suspicious. I've never really seen the evidence behind some of that research. Um, so I'd, I'd love to go along with it and I'm a big fan of it. Um, but I don't know actually how many pieces of evidence they put together in order to get to that figure. Um, but I think if nothing else, it's a lovely corrective force and some kind of a benchmark worth thinking about. One of the other elements of brand that you've, you've touched upon already is this idea of sustainability and purpose and the role that that plays in Arcadis's brand. How do you go about articulating that and where do you see the value of that to the business? I think we, we looked at a brand refresh a year or two ago. Um, as our business was changing, we wanted our brand to, to keep pace with that. Um, and our brand passion, I guess, is improving quality of life. And that cuts across absolutely everything we do. And I think it's our strongest brand position. And if you, you sort of distill the work that you do back to that. So, you know, if we're doing a project, you know, on a particular road that cuts travel time or congestion, that's a good link into straight away improving quality of life. And likewise, if it's a new housing estate or something like that, where we've got better, you know, um, air quality, for example, et cetera. So I think that what we've been able to do is really distill and really help um, the business with storytelling around the work that we do and make it simple. Because some of the work that we do is incredibly complex, right? We're dealing with sometimes projects that can go for years that have lots of different stakeholders and how do you cut that down to where you added value and your piece in it Um, so I think that storytelling around our brand passion for improving quality of life has been the thing that we've gravitated towards and I think that's worked quite well for us. It's interesting isn't it that some of the b2b brands I think have a far more direct connection 
to things such as improving quality of life and have a far greater impact on on that than a lot of the B2C brands that kind of scrabble their way up various different ropes and ladders to try to get to a, an overarching purpose. It is going to be an interesting thing to see how, how B2B brands use that in different ways over the next few years, certainly. I'm a slight skeptic around the word purpose. Um, not to say that I don't believe there's value in it, but I'm a little bit skeptical as to how it's used as a shortcut or um, a kind of catch-all for, for not really investigating um, the, the value of what a business can bring. Yeah, I agree. I think that a lot of companies look at the stats and they see consumers are really interested in purpose and sustainability in some of those topics. So then we'll just position around that and get, you know, attract our audience. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think B2B brands have a huge, you know, role in this. I mean, if you look at some of the work that we do, it, it, it goes straight to improving quality of life. Yet how do you make that a stronger brand, um, you know, proposition? Um, so, yeah, I do think it's an interesting one, but I think there's more and more scrutiny on um, people that are just using those slogans without the proof points to back it up. And I think there's been a bit of, do you know what I mean, leeway, um, but consumers are pretty savvy and are starting to see through some of that as well. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. Absolutely. So, I mean, speaking of the next couple of years, there's potential downturn looming. Um, and you mentioned thinking around the, the split between brand and demand, that idea of long-term versus short-term thinking sometimes. How do you advocate for the importance of brand investment and longer-term thinking at a time like this? Yeah, I mean, I always sort of say to my team that data is our shield, really, and we've really got to get, um, you know, better at that and thinking about what's our story and what's our pitch and what, how are we adding value? What are the leads we're bringing in? What are the audience insights? Um, because I think there's been lots of research around that that shows that, you know, if you at least keep your marketing spend the same during a recession, you'll emerge stronger and you'll even grow market share. But, you know, I think that for marketing people, I think that if you, you're looking at getting budget cuts during a recession, I, I think that's a clear indication from the board that they don't see that your value, you know, that you've got that value creation piece nailed and you're not adding that value. So I think, you know, thinking about that now is a good thing to do and um, making sure you've got your good story lined up because, yeah, I think that the pressure will be on, um, you know, with with the recession um, looming and, and other things that are going on right now. Absolutely. Very interesting. How to Grow a CMO is a CMO crowd podcast brought to you by The Marketing Practice a global integrated B2B marketing agency that brings together all the skills you need in one place to design and run marketing programs. You can access all our videos, reports, and a peer-led community designed to help you keep on learning at cmocrowd.com. So thinking a little bit more broadly then, uh, stepping away from the, the direct business value of marketing and how you go about articulating that, one of the other areas of CMO's role that might be impacted by a shift in the macroeconomic environment is, of course, your team. Um, and, and what do you think are the impacts on your team or what will be the impacts on your team? And how do you go about nurturing teams in a challenging environment? Yeah, I think this one's a huge one. You know, there's so much pressure on at the moment, even, you know, recessions, but inflation, you know, and some of the social changes and things going on in the world. 
but also the way that we work has really changed in the way that we connect with each other. Um, so I think one of the sort of, I guess, light bulb moments for me, if you like, in this role um, was really thinking that um, prioritising people um, was probably the most important part of my role because you're always going to be surrounded by people that know the technical things and know the strategies and often know it better than you. <laughs> so the bit that I can add in about, you know, is looking after people. Um, so for me it means getting into, so what is well-being? And, you know, I think you get a lot of leaders saying, oh, wellbeing is really important, we support wellbeing, you know, come along to a webinar. And I'm not, you know, being discourteous about webinars. I think some of them are really great. Uh, but it's, web, you know, webinars and those sorts of things are not going to really um, shift things for your people alone. Um, I think to me it's been about looking at, well, what are the, the demands within the workforce? Who is, you know, we used to have this sort of double hatting and triple hatting and, you know, it was almost sort of a, a, a badge of pride, oh, I'm double-hatting a role now. Well, that just means you're doing two roles and we don't have the resources to bring someone in. This is this is an issue. So looking at that and, and making sure what's our model for demand management, if we don't have more people, how can we manage, you know, the demand that we're, we're coming in? Where do our, our teams work? How do they want to work? Really taking the time to listen. And I think all of those things can help with mental health issues and wellbeing issues within the workplace. So, yeah, I do spend a lot of time thinking about the people strategy and making sure I've got an articulated people plan and thinking about some of the things that I need to do to make sure that I'm setting my team up for success. It's interesting, isn't it? That idea of we can solve something with a webinar. You know, you can kind of take that box, put it in a, here's, here's a, the panacea you can just go go to this for half an hour and you'll suddenly be uh, mentally healthy and well for the rest of your life it does seem like a, a strange trap to fall into but i know what you mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, on a slightly more positive note what what is your approach to building world-class marketing teams you know what's what do you see as the right mix of skills is there a certain type of marketer who might be attracted to to the business that you work in um what does your interview process look like things like that yeah, I mean, I think that the digital marketing skills has been the thing over the last few years that, you know, I've really focused on. And a part of that is that we can also pass on those skills to our existing teams, so that's been important. But when I'm looking at someone new coming in, predominantly what I look at is the soft skills. I'll be honest, that that is, you know, how they can work with the team, how, how can they fit in with the culture, um, can they work with stakeholders, you know, can they help influence all of those sorts of things um, are probably important because I, I really do think you can teach some of the rest. So, yes, digital marketing is important. It's the skill that we want. But if someone comes in with the right attitude, then we can teach that as well. And then I think as we've been putting teams together, I've been interested in this concept of the sort of T-shaping of roles and, you know, um, getting people with core competency but then teaching them, you know, or, or giving them learning and development support so that they can expand beyond that. And that's been really important as well as I've tried to transform the function. Yeah, I think it's a lovely idea. I've, I've had various different letters now. There's, there's T-shaped, uh, W-shaped, M-shaped. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen an O-shaped just yet. Um, but okay. no, I think, I think you're right. It's, um, it, it's so useful, isn't it? And I, I see a lot of uh, friction and tension that builds up when there isn't enough overlap of skills. You know, when the translation gap between people is just too large, that it's very hard for them to communicate. And I think that that sense of being T-shaped, of spreading 
your knowledge a little bit more broadly beyond your core competency is, is a hugely valuable thing for anybody to bring to a business. Yeah, definitely. And the, the digital marketing stuff as well is is important for everyone. So if, even if you're in, a, in an internal communications role and you do a lot of writing and you're looking at internal audiences, um, bringing data in is really important, you know, so you can look at, well, who's engaging with this? How can I bring in a feedback loop? What are, what are other people doing? What's best practice? You know, what digital tools might make my life easier? Is there anything I can automate? So these things are still topics that are, are worthy of having regardless of your role and your function within a marketing organisation. I just want to pick up on one thing that you said earlier around the soft skills. You said the soft skills are one of the first things that, that you look for. So how do you go about looking for them? Is there intuition or particular questions in an interview process or things you look for on a CV that, that are the clues you're looking for? It's a hard one. It, I guess it comes down to interviewing. And I know you asked earlier about the interviewing process. I don't know that I've got that nailed. I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest. I think there's a huge issue at the moment with getting people in, you know, and speed to market and how quickly, you know, we can move through that interviewing process. Um, you know, I think I've worked in corporates for a long time and I don't know that we have that um, nailed particularly. Um, I do think that um, one of the things that I've done is doing team interviews for senior roles, which I think can really help, and getting others and peers involved in the interviewing process has been useful. Um, obviously, making sure you have a diverse group of people that are a part of the interview process. But, yeah, involving team members at a, a peer level um, or doing a group interview for final stages um, is something that I think works well kind of get more from those conversations because then they can they, they, then they tend to be a bit more casual they're sort of they don't feel as sort of as you know much like a, a formal interview so you can kind of you know get to know the person a little bit better and their sort of personality starts coming out you can sort of start seeing how they might fit in with the team dynamic um so that's definitely one i'd recommend yeah fantastic i think it's a great bit of advice um and a, and a really lovely idea I've also I've taken that idea as well and and run it to the extent that I think when I've hired for a senior position in the team, invited the people who who are going to be working for them, if you like, uh, to interview them. So they're actually interviewing their future boss and then just say to them very very honestly, what did you think? You know, is there somebody you want to work for? Um, and that hopefully sets up the relationship on the right foot that it's a two way thing rather than a top down initiative. Yeah, that's great for that reason because you want to send that. that. They're the sorts of teams that we want to build, right? We want them to be two-way and it's not sort of top-down, you know, giving dictation. It's really changed. We want teams to be collaborative and, you know, everyone has a role to play. So, yeah, I really like that idea as well. And then moving on just before we, we finish off with our quick questions, but to the idea of balance. Um, so you're obviously an extremely busy person. Uh, you know, being both a marketing leader and a single parent and, and owner of a new puppy as well. So um, how do you go about finding balance in your life? Um, it's, been, it's been a long journey, I'd have to say. I was probably at the beginning of my career, you know, like many of us, just sort of working, working, working and really feeling that that was the answer to everything. Um, but a particularly being a single mum, I think, has, has really helped me. It's be, I, I think it's helped me be a better leader. Um, and it's helped me to find some balance in there. You know, you, you, I simply can't, I can't please everyone all of the time. <laughs> You're right. I'm going to, so you then have to be really choiceful about what, where you spend your time. 
I remember um, a, a team member asked me recently about, you know, she was invited to a conference and it, was, it would be really important for her to meet some colleagues and others, um, but it happened to fall on the same day that her son um, started high school. And, she, you know, she asked me what I thought. And to me, that's a no-brainer. You know, there are times where family, you know, should take a front seat and we should be upfront with that and not be apologetic. You know, that's where we bring our whole selves to work. And, you know, if that's something that to me sounded like um, much more important. But then, yes, there are other days where you're going to make a choice that's going to be about a work commitment and maybe feel like you're not there. Do you know, you know, I think you've just got to pick your moments. Um, but I think understanding your boundaries and feeling that you don't need to actually work until nine o'clock or 10 o'clock to prove your worth, you know, is really important. And then be upfront when you've got personal commitments and stand by them, you know, quite happily will say, you know, what I've got if I'm, you know, I'm picking up my son from school or something like that. I'll quite happily tell everyone that's what I do on a Friday afternoon. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Jill. And I am, um... I think there's something really important in there and the idea of that there's a slight assumption within the word balance sometimes, which I think can be really misleading, that it, that it means evenness. Um, and actually, yeah. I think often the choice is uh, how, choosing how to be uneven, where to actually weight things um, and, and when. And that they're not always going to be the same for every day or for every week or for every month or every year. Um, but at least to be intentional about it and to understand why you're making those choices and, and to be in a position to make those choices, I think, is is a privilege that we have and we should use. Yeah, exactly. So therefore, if I can lead by example with that, then others in my team will be confident to follow. And I think that's really important. So be unapologetic. And, and I do t tend to plan my week out in advance. And I think about, well, what are those moments that I can't miss? You know, and, and you know, and what are they? And let me try and make those work for this week. So yes, I, I appreciate the privilege I have. But I'm also trying to, to, to lead by example as well and hope that others can follow. Fantastic. Thank you, Jill. So we're now going to move into, if it's okay, the rapid fire round. Um, I think rapid fire is a massive overstatement <laughs> for the record, but people tend to answer relatively fast, if you don't mind. Okay. So uh, you've actually touched on this already, uh, but I'll ask you again, see if you come up with a slightly different answer anyway, under a different situation. So complete the sentence. The qualities I look for in my next exceptional hire are? Oh, whether the person will fit in with the rest of the team. Fantastic. I often say that the only problems that worry me are the ones that I can't see. So I try to be open with my team about any challenges I have, the mistakes that I make to create a space where they're comfortable doing the same. What's a mistake that you've made in the past couple of weeks? I think I was involved, well, I was involved in a project which involved a lot of governance, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of, you know, presentations and those sorts of things. And I, you know, just went there and immersed myself in that. And, you know, I just refer back to our previous conversation about people putting people first and making sure I had time in my diary. And I think that, yeah, I felt when I look back at things, I think, yeah, I was sort of lost there, you know, in sort of governance and all sorts of topics when, you know, I should have carved out more time in my diary on those particular weeks to spend with my team. So I really checked myself on that and make, make sure it doesn't happen again. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for your candor. Um, what's something that most people get wrong about you? I think that people see me as being very resourceful and very resilient. They're two words that people use a lot to describe me. Um, but I think sometimes people might think that that means I don't need guidance or I don't need 
a mentor, I don't need advice and I don't have, do you know, anything new to learn. And I think that's really wrong. I'm a, a big believer in sort of lifelong learning. So, yeah, I've always got um, stuff ahead of me that I want to do. Thank you. What a brilliant answer. Um, so the, the area that I'm particularly interested in is, is technology marketing. And this is something I ask a lot of people I meet, whether it's an interview or uh, professionally. But what are the technologies that you're most excited about over the next five to 10 years? I think at a personal level, probably um, the self-driving cars, because I just love the idea of sort of being driven around. And I also think they're more inclusive and potentially safer. So I think that that'd be a great one. Um, but for if I think about B2B marketing, I really think AI has got a lot to offer. And I know it's in some of our tools, but I think there's probably more on the horizon that would be really interesting. So how can AI use be used to help us sort of forecast client demand or even shorten distance between clients and, you know, how do they connect with an expert and those sorts of things? Can AI help us start to solve some of those business problems? So I think, yeah, that, that will be huge um, for, for this, yeah, for this industry. So I can't wait to see what that looks like. That's great. I'm so glad you said that. It's a real uh, kind of passion of mine, uh, the potential applications of AI. I actually, we spoke to Iris Mayer of Verizon the other day, and she said remarkably that apparently her team have 237 machine learning models that they're currently using, uh, which, which blew my mind. Um, uh, and it's yeah, quite quite a remarkable fact. But there's there's just there's, there's just interesting emerging applications coming up all, all over the place. I don't know if you've seen recently there are machine learning models that are able to generate very realistic looking images uh, from text prompts. Yeah, uh, and already my team started playing around with that and coming up with all sorts of interesting stuff. Yeah, this is this is going to be huge for us. And I love it. Like it's, I'm, I'm blown away by that statistic. So I'm thinking about <laughs> what it means. <laughs> it's quite intimidating, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite intimidating, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, for sure, I think this will be the thing that transforms us over the next few years. Definitely. What do you do to to switch off? Well, away from work, and I have a pretty simple life, to be honest. I love spending time with my son. Um, walking my new dog <laughs> and really just planning my next um, holiday. I love traveling. So um, I don't do an awful lot. I think that a role like this um, and being a single mum is in itself a, a big commitment. So it's really around relaxation, I think, and, and taking time out with family and friends. Lovely. What's one piece of advice or one idea, either about marketing or about life in general, that you keep coming back to? I was thinking about this, you know, before and, you know, I mean, I don't want this to sound too negative, but I always come back to no one else is going to do it for you. Um, and what I mean, you know, you've got to back yourself and you've got to put yourself forward for roles and for things in, in life that even before you think you're ready. Um, and sometimes some of us have great sponsors and mentors and others. There's lots of people out there that don't. So I think that, you know, advocating for yourself and, um, you know, and, and doing that is, is something that I think is very valuable. Jill Murray, what a lovely thing to end on. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. How to Grow a CMO is a production of the CMO Crowd, brought to you by The Marketing Practice. Make sure you never miss an episode by joining the cmocrowd.com slash podcasts for exclusive member-only content, including events, videos, reports, and more exclusive to the CMO Crowd. My name is Ali Hussain. You've been listening to How to Grow a CMO by the CMO Crowd. <laughs>